Continuous improvement comes in lots of different flavors and styles. I'm Bella Engelbach, and I'm inviting you to journey with me to the edges of lean. Episode 106, Continuously Improving Your Connection to Yourself with Katerina Polanska. When I coach and when I consult, I am focused on my client and their goals and needs, which raises an important question. Where am I in that relationship? Katerina Polanska believes that coaching that is successful for the client requires the coach to be connected to herself and that doing so creates energy and strength for the coach and that this is important for everybody. She joined me at the Ages of Lean to share her insights and how she helps her clients connect to themselves. Katerina Polanska, welcome to the Ages of Lean. Thank you for having me. Really nice to have you here today. Uh, so, Katerina, please introduce yourself to everyone. Sure. So, my name is Katerina. I'm calling today from Vancouver, a beautiful city I used to live in, though now I'm based out of Spain. And I'm a transformation coach and specializing in relationships, specifically helping people connect better to themselves so that they can connect better to others. I'm a firm believer that the best relationships we can build all start with a solid relationship to our core being and who we are. A um, little bit of context, I have a master's degree in gender dynamics from the University of Oxford. I'm a firm believer also that gender really impacts how we show up in the world and how we experience the world. So that's an area I look at with my clients. And before I became a coach, I was in behavioral science, working in an organizational psychology organization. So what was, the, what was the thing that made you switch from working in an organization to becoming a coach? Was there, was mm. there a moment when you thought, oh, this is, this is what I need to do? Yeah, good question. It, there was a moment. So I started working with the biggest coaching company in the world. They're a, they're a tech giant. Most big companies will be partnering with them. And I was helping grow their EMEA office out of London. So I moved from Vancouver back to London started working for this coaching company. And one of the perks is that I got unlimited coaching. So as an employee, I was allowed to have as much coaching as I wanted. And I was going through a bit of a personal hard time. I didn't really want to be moving back to London. I moved back partly because of the Ukraine war, my dad's there, and there was a lot of heartache. So I started the coaching. And I think at one point I had about four different coaches. And all of them were incredible, so incredible and motivating and inspiring. And I found it almost even more powerful than therapy because I loved how present they were and how strategic they were in their thinking. And so that's really what inspired me to get out of corporate myself and build my own coaching and consultancy business. And yeah, here I am. That must have been incredible. So you had four coaches at the same time. It was it four coaches consecutively. Yeah, four coaches at the same time. Um, they all had different niches. So one yeah. of the nice things at that organization, I had a communications coach. At one point I had a grief coach. I had a kind of my, my main personal coach. And then I think I had a high performance coach, someone who was helping me be more productive and, uh, you know, get my work done. Cause it's a, a lot of pressure at that organization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you, and it sounds like you were going through a lot of personal pressure at yeah. the same time. Mm -hmm. And so you said that you felt it was better than therapy. And that's something mm. we've talked about quite a bit on this mm -hmm. podcast is how people see therapy versus how they see 
coaching and what's the difference? So mm. what was that difference for you? Yeah, really good question. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love therapy. I will still have therapy. I mean, I've had therapy for like over 15 years. Therapy is brilliant for looking at stuff in the past and processing the past and making sense of it and making peace with it and kind of embodying that newfound realization or truth or release or whatever it might be. For me, coaching is kind of the thing that works in parallel to that. So once we process the past and had that breakthrough, had that relief, the coaching takes us into the present moment, looks at where are we at now based on this information and where do we want to get to? So it's very much, okay, so you've had therapy, you've recognized and learned X, Y, and Z about yourself. How is that showing up in your life now? And what do you want to do with it? So it's very strategic and forward focused. And I love that element of it, especially when it comes to the relationships side of things and within relationships, integrating relationships into our normal day to day. One of my struggles with therapy was that it's all very good and well to explore our past and kind of go deep into our psyche. But the reality is a lot of us have corporate jobs, have to work, Mm -hmm. you know, eight to 10 hours a day, have a lot of pressures, have a lot of financial pressures. And actually we can't just meditate all day or sit soothing ourselves or, you know, processing the whole time. We have to actually kind of get on with things. And so I like how coaching takes that therapy learning and applies it into the real world and applies it into a strategic um, a strategy. I really like that explanation, Katrina. I think mm-hmm. it's very helpful. And and it really says to us, you know, it works both ways, right? So mm-hmm. that that you can take what you have learned in therapy and um, use that as a starting place or mm-hmm. you know, your sort of your current condition mm-hmm. for where mm-hmm. you're coaching from. And it's also works the other way, right? Sometimes in coaching we uncover things that perhaps need some more um looking back and, and understanding where it came from. And so there should be sort of a for any individual, there should be some kind of of movement back and forth as you need it in your mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious, and I think my listeners will be too, about what you're saying about connection to self. So mm-hmm. I'm just sort of thinking about um, the kind of people who listen to this podcast, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you can you can email me afterwards, folks, or you know reach out to me on LinkedIn if we got mm-hmm. this if I got this right or got it wrong. Mm-hmm. But um, these are people who are going into organizations, whether they mm-hmm. work in an organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a in a corporation or going in mm-hmm. as an external consultant, you know, or working with people. And many of us are coaching. And as coaches, we are being um, the person who is in a way sort of uh, sometimes a, a mirror, a placid mirror for mm-hmm. uh, the, the people we're coaching um, to, to allow them to think in a way that is not the way that they Mm-hmm. are always able to think, you know, to, mm-hmm. to try, you know, to ask questions, to be asked questions. And that requires, I think, sometimes as a coach, um, you know, stepping away from everything that you just talked about, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on in our own lives, you know, mm-hmm. the, the argument we may have had with someone in the family mm-hmm. 15 mm-hmm. minutes before the, mm-hmm. the, the, challenges that we that we know are going on with our children mm-hmm. as, as spouses our friends our neighbors and how that all I- impacts us mm-hmm. and so I think I feel as if there's a there's a call sometimes to 
be disconnected. Mm-hmm. But I think that's not what you're saying. So mm-hmm. so so tell tell me what it is you're really saying. Yeah, no, I really love that. And it's very true. And at the same time, I wonder if it is actually disconnecting when we are in front of clients or if it's actually connecting to our servitude and our purpose, right? And what we are here to do as coaches. Mm. So for example, the connection to self is so deep and nuanced. It's kind of why I love it. We can go very, very, very deep. And when I have to present or work with a client and I might be going through my own things, my own challenges, which might even be parallel with what the client's going through, right? And there's a lot of room to be potentially triggered or potentially upset and project and have opinions. That's not a coach's place. Right. What I do in that moment is I find disconnecting quite difficult as a bit of context. I've probably disconnected for a lot of my life and that's led me astray. So what I do now is I connect to the part of myself that is in service. I might do a meditation, I might ground myself and connect to the part of myself that really wants to serve and help that client in the best way that I can. And that allows me to get out of my own way and be that blank canvas, that mirror that can help them. Does that make sense? So I think it does. But what you're saying is then is then that work has to be done to really understand your purpose. So when you say, Kazarina, mm. that you're connecting to that part of yourself that is of service mm-hmm. to others, that's not something I think that you arrive at, you know, mm. quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, you mm-hmm. know, one morning you wake up and go, I want to be of service to others and the way I'm going to yeah. do it is coaching. Yeah. There's a lot of work I would imagine that went mm-hmm. into that. So can mm-hmm. you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that's that's, again, a really, really good point. And I think that's why there are some coaches who are going to be great and some who might realize that it's actually not for them. And actually they might get drained, right? I've met plenty of coaches who find coaching actually very tiring and draining. And I think that's probably because it isn't in alignment with who they are authentically and what their quote unquote purpose is meant to be on the earth. And our purpose can change as well. For me, where it came from was, I think most of my life I had a sense of, I want to help people. I just didn't know how. And after I finished my master's degree, so I was an entrepreneur in my, my kind of first career in the, uh, yeah. in the wine industry. So helping people through having fun. I don't know what I was doing there. It was fun. Um, but then when I went back into my master's and I did gender studies, I was really passionate about gender justice and helping women, especially women in the global South. And that was like my purpose back then. And what I realized as I started channeling that was there's only so much I can do from, you know, my office in London or my office in Vancouver, if I'm trying to affect and help women in the global South, it was kind of very limited. And how, how much do I know what I'm doing is actually really helping them. There's such a disconnect from people's voices and the help that's being sent out. So I got a little bit, not disillusioned per se, but began to question if that's actually the best use of my time because I began to burn out and I began to feel that I'm not really connecting with the people on the ground that I'd like to connect with. And so it was really an iterative process of sense checking and connecting to myself as I worked my way through my career to see where do I feel most inspired and most enlivened by my client interactions and where do I feel quite drained? And that's Mm. what made me realize that when I was working for that big coaching company, they were a great company. 
I just didn't like my role there. I just didn't feel, I felt tired. I felt a little bit drained. And the reality is I was only working about eight hours a day. I was getting paid a really great amount. And I lived in a great city and I had everything going for me. And yet I would finish the day feeling a little bit demoralized, a little bit defeated, a little bit isolated, burnt out, essentially. And that's what gave me that cue that, okay, something's not working here. I'm clearly not connecting with the right people. And I'm clearly not fulfilling my sense of purpose. Because we know, I mean, psychology shows that when we connect to our sense of purpose, we have more energy, we have more flow, we, we're more enlivened in our psyche. So, so it was really an iterative process. And then when I started coaching and started working with clients, I was like, oh, I don't know why people think this is draining. This is great. I didn't feel drained. I feel really energized. After every client session, I was, yeah, I was, I was really energized. And actually, final thing I'll add, as I began working with clients one-on-one, I began to notice as well that certain conversations weren't as uplifting as others, not because the client's necessarily bringing happy stuff, but the topic of conversation. So I originally started working with people on issues like productivity, managing, you know, delegation, upskilling, sales enablement, all this stuff. I still enjoy that, but it didn't give me that same sense of boost and energy and, and kind of zest as working with people on their relationships, whether it's relationships to self or their relationships to others. That was a topic that I found, okay, not only am I good at this, but it feels easy and in the flow for me. And so I think that's, that's where I need to focus. So that must have taken a lot of attention to yourself, right? Mm-hmm. To, to yeah. you, how you were feeling before you went into coaching. Am I feeling anxious about this Mm. session and and afterwards um, how you were feeling. So, so were you noting this? Were you making coaching notes for the client and then coaching notes for Katerina? How, how, how did you keep track of that? Yeah, good question. So honestly, I think this is something that became a bit of a a default with me. It was something I've been working on for so many years. And because I was, I was a job hopper in my early twenties. You know, I was Mm. in a different role every year because I couldn't find something that fit. So I became quite good at sense checking, okay, how do I actually feel about this? What's actually coming up for me? And if it's fear that's coming up, what is that fear trying to tell me? It might be that there's simply some knowledge that I need to gain or some missing gaps of information I need to get. Once I've got them, then the fear goes away. But it might also be that my gut instinct is telling me that this is actually the wrong thing for me to do. So I became quite good at just checking in with myself. I should also add that I'm a mindfulness teacher. Um, and I've been meditating for a very long time. So it comes to that kind of being still, sitting with myself, letting things come up and just sense checking with what's coming up. And eventually it's become more of a an automatic response. I still forget to do it sometimes. If I'm, you know, grinding away or I've got a long day and there's a lot going on, then I'll forget. And I'll do things that actually aren't in my best interest because I I just do them because I think I should. But generally speaking, it's become more of an automatic response. So you've trained yourself in a way mm-hmm. to do that yeah, over, absolutely. Over, over the years. Yeah, yeah. So, Katharina, when you say that connection to yourself, is that what you're meaning? It's that it's that response, which sounds like in, in for yourself, that you trained yourself to pay attention to it and to track it and to, and to act on it. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes you forget. Mm-hmm. as you said is that what you're talking about it's that it's that 
not ignoring who you are physically Mm -hmm. and emotionally as you're doing your work. Mm -hmm. What stops us from from doing that? Where along the way do we learn not to do that? Mm. Because I think if you watch, you know, sort of a four-year-old, right? (laughs) They're very connected to whether their tummy hurts or or Mm -hmm. if they're they're angry. But what happens along the way that we lose that that ability to do that? Oh, so many things. And I think I think if we're going to be really radically honest, we're probably still very disconnected from ourselves, Mm. truth be told. What happens along the way is societal, cultural upbringing and pressure, I would say. So we, we, especially the the rational kind of high achieving, intelligent types who see the world, make sense of it and recognize, okay, there are some people who do well in the world and some people who don't. And the people who do, right, they go through these different hoops. They do these different things. They climb these different ladders. And so from a young age, we're socially conditioned into doing things we think we should to get to results that we think we should have because we were told that this is a good idea and you you should get married and you should have this job and you should have a car and you should have a home and blah, blah, blah. And so we just disconnect. We disconnect from our bodies. We disconnect from our connection to the earth. We disconnect from our connection to the things around us. We just live up in our heads a lot of the time, like one of my coaches, she was like, you live from the neck, you live from the neck up, constantly mm. up in the head, just up in the head and constantly being logical and rational and analyzing everything and making kind of scientific sense of stuff without actually listening to how the body feels. And the body's important because the body's actually the thing that's taking in the environment around us, right? So the body's taking all that subconscious information. And that's why listening to our anxiety, listening to our fear, listening to our gut instincts is really important and being able to actually tap into that. But yeah, to me, it's just the, the disconnect from that because of, unfortunately, society. But isn't there a challenge? And I think it's especially a challenge for women. And I'm going to mm. delve into what you've learned in, in your gender studies work, that the part of it is about whether or not we we are physically connected or, or we feel what's happening in our body. It is a problem for us if we display that mm-hmm. in any way is is that do you do you find that's true and is it 100%. i mean I, it's definitely true for men right mm-hmm. men but but I, I i feel you know having spent a lot of time in corporate america that it's true for women too that mm-hmm. any you know display of of i might be feeling anxious about something mm-hmm. you know outward mm-hmm. reflection of what's happening inwardly can be or we perceive it as being dangerous, which makes us more likely to shut that down. Am I just, at least that's my experience. Yeah, Yeah, no, 100%. There's like two things going on here. Well, first of all, I can't remember what study it was, but I remember reading a study about how female leaders who actually do trust their guts and they do trust their intuition, but generally more competent and more successful than male counterparts who are purely strategic. Because again, you're accruing so much more information around you than just depending on your brain which can be hijacked half the time by conditioning and repeated messages from outside of us so it it works like listening to ourselves works but as you said because of unfortunately systematic patriarchy we've been conditioned that showing any vulnerability any fear any anxiety any kind of second guessing of a situation is going to appear as weakness and weakness is bad right and so of course we naturally learn that because we're smart intuitive beings and say okay well to survive in this society I'm not allowed to show weakness and so then a lot of women go into the the opposite and where they become very hardened 
very rational, very strategic, very cutthroat and very disconnected from kind of the the humanity of what it is to inhabit a human body, let alone a female body. And the other thing that's happening is specifically with women from a really, I mean, from birth, we are conditioned within our bodies to hold up and to enact a certain way of being that men aren't. So there's a really great essay by Iris Marin Young called Throwing Like a Girl. And she talks about how, you know, there's a way that a girl throws, which would be kind of like typically weaker, and the way a boy throws, which would be much more boisterous and full body, then he'll extend his arms and it'll take up more space. And she comments on how literally from a developmental point of view, women aren't allowed or aren't conditioned to develop the full muscular function that a lot of boys are. We are told that we have to cross our legs, stay small, wear tight-fitting outfits that actually constrict our breathing. This is kind of going deep into like, you know, 70s yeah. feminism. But it's the point is we're not allowed or haven't been allowed to fully take up space and to fully, to fully be. And so there's a natural constriction there, which leads us to be, again, more up in the head and more disconnected from the wisdom of what's going on around us and connecting to that. That reminds me very much of a coaching that I received on mm -hmm. presentations mm -hmm. with a the coach who was a woman said one of the things that she sees women do on stage is to make themselves small mm -hmm. um, and not take up the space. She said, if you watch a man presenting, well, it's the same thing you were talking about with throwing a ball, you know, a mm -hmm. man will, yeah. will um, you know, be extending his arms. He'll be taking his, mm -hmm. his space on the stage or women will be standing there. Perhaps we're even, you know, even mm -hmm. not even standing on. So their two feet standing with one foot in front of the other. So they look thinner. Yeah. And, uh, and so that, that is, I think that conditioning does exist that we hundred percent you're supposed to take up less space, just 100%. Um, whether or not we believe it or our mothers believed it. I think we we absorb that just from from 100%. growing up and for what we're told. hundred percent. And in addition to that, I'll just add female bodies are typically, I mean, from a kind of biological point of view, they're typically softer. They're more fluid. They're more like they're more messy than masculine bodies, which are more structured and tight and kind of more corporate. And society typically does value the disciplined, the structured, the corporate, the rational, the logical. Linguistically speaking, kind of philosophically, it doesn't really like the, the messy, the hormonal, the fluctuating, the fluid, which is unfortunately, from a biological point of view, what women's bodies are made to be. And so, again, another piece of conditioning is that we're taught from a very young age that it's not safe or respected. It's not going to help our careers if we're connected to the female body. We have to be more disciplined. I mean, this is why anorexia is such a big thing. I had it myself and I studied it a lot at Oxford, but this is why anorexia is such a kind of logical conclusion of the type A female, because through anorexia, you discipline your body. You might even lose your periods. You become very angular, very structured very kind of contained and compact and lean and strong. And you display this kind of mind over body control that, again, society really values. And so, of course, a lot of women do that on a subconscious level. It makes complete sense. It's not respected to be kind of fluid and, and you know, messy and organic. That's not something that our capitalist structure really likes.
but we we are still all those things, right? Mm-hmm. Right, completely. Right, and and for those for those people who are dealing with anorexia, then what they're also dealing with is they're really harming themselves. Absolutely. At the yeah. same time, at the same time that they're trying to fit into mm-hmm. um, sort of a box, yeah, that uh, yeah. they perceive is the box they should fit into. Mm-hmm. All right, so mm-hmm. I'm go- I want to go somewhere now, Catherine. I don't know if you. If if this is something you want to talk about, and the men who are listening, you can you can decide if you want to listen or not. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I think is really interesting about women in um, who are working in corporations mm-hmm. or or anywhere, and as you you know mm-hmm. you already mentioned periods, is that we're not supposed to actually have periods, right? Yeah, or to have to deal with them. Carpet, yeah. right? You know, and you've got to sit through the, you know, the three and a half hour meeting, the four hour meeting, and and um, you know, I I'm past those days now. Thank thank goodness. Mm-hmm. But all right, everyone, you know, you all know. Um, but I know having to carry it like I used to mm. carry a big bag around with, you know, with supplies in and things like that. And if I was having any kind of issues, I never told anyone about that because. Absolutely. Even though I personally had to be in touch with what was happening with my with my body, I could not mm-hmm. tell anybody mm-hmm. about what was happening because I thought I would be perceived as being mm-hmm. weak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's such a challenge for women. For sure. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, for sure. And it's, yeah. Yeah. And so, it and it disconnects us from actually very real gifts of what it is to be to be inhabiting a woman's body because actually again there are certain things that do happen according to our cycle and based on our biology there is more empathy and compassion and potentially intuition at around certain moments these are all really good things especially in a corporate environment where you have to make quick decisions and sense check the world around you and kind of attune to mm-hmm. what's going on and make these decisions sometimes you don't have time to make a logical framework structured decision and actually again the data does show that this kind of decision-making can work wonders. It's just we have to harness it and use it in a way that's actually empowering rather than fearing it and suffocating it. Because when we suffocate it, more suffering happens. For what purpose? Yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. So when you're working with a client then, Katerina, and um, let's say you're you're working with a woman, I'm sure you work with men as well. But Mm -hmm. when you're working with a woman and she is walking this line right between mm-hmm. being being in touch with herself being who she really is connecting with herself and potentially connecting with those abilities that come out of truly connecting with herself but she also is concerned about what that might mean about what other people might think about it what types of things do do your clients uh experiment with as as they mm-hmm. move through um, through becoming more connected with themselves? Yeah, so that's a really good question. The first place to start, and this is for every area of life, whether it's our health, whether it's, again, our relationships to other people, whether it's our careers, is to get really, really good at connecting to ourselves. And that simply looks like learning to inhabit our bodies. So imagine taking your attention out of your head and putting it into your body. So doing things like body scans and kind of embodying meditations is a great way to begin to practice this. And what it looks like in a corporate environment is the fastest way to get rid of any kind of anxiety or stress and nerves is to just take that attention out of your head where all the chatter is going on, all that rubbish and nonsense, and put it into your body. For me, typically, it's kind of like lower belly. 
put it into the lower belly and just stay there for a little bit and feel what's going on. And oftentimes I will feel, or my clients will feel that actually they're quite safe in that part of their body. I mean, for women, if we're going to get really woo-woo, I mean, it's kind of, that's where the womb is and that's where there's a lot of wisdom and Mm. that's if you want to go that way. But in any case, whether you're, you know, studying meditation or just learning to take up space, putting attention into the body, into that lower belly area can be very powerful. Anxiety typically lives up here and in our heads. So bypassing So, so for those of you who are listening, mm-hmm. Katerina indicated oh, yeah. her chest and her head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So anxiety typically lives kind of in our upper chest and in our head. So if we can take that energy, potentially scan it down if we have time through the chest and get a little bit curious. Again, science shows that showing curiosity towards anxiety and where it is in the body. And even Martha Beck talks about how even doing this like, hmm, you know, kind of curious sound can actually invoke a lot of calmness to the body because we're showing some compassion and curiosity. But taking that attention down into the lower belly and then just letting it stay there is very, very grounding and very empowering because that's where a lot of wisdom lies. And so if we can stay there and then begin to move from there, begin to walk from there and explore, like, what does it feel like to take up space? How safe are we to actually kind of have our feet on the ground, have our bodies here? It is pretty safe. Like we are supported by the earth. We are supported by our environment. So all that chatter in the head suddenly disappears because we're we're with a, a wiser part of ourselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you're you're what you're doing then I think is you're connecting, but you're saying you're also connecting to the earth or, or the floor mm-hmm. you're standing to the floor, on. Yeah. And and not about about what like as you said, the chatter in the head. Mm-hmm. And then does and then there's that free up your mind then mm-hmm. to do the kind of thinking or decision making or listening that you need to do for whatever it is that the situations come because you put the other stuff in a safe place. Exactly. <clears throat> One of the fastest kind of hacks, and I'm just giving kind of faster tools here, but is to take that tension out of the head into the lower body and just keep it there for a few minutes and breathe from that place and just let your attention wander around your body and what it feels like. Begin to notice how does it feel to take up space? How does it feel to be standing here or sitting here? How does my body actually feel? And just even attending to that calms the nervous system down quite a lot. And when we Mm. calm the nervous system down, then our mind begins to expand and we can begin to think more clearly rather than having that kind of constricted, tight headspace where the thoughts are chattering, we're very disconnected from the neck down, and we're just living in this tiny little bubble in our heads full of stress and anxiety and societal rubbish and fear and all of that nasty stuff that we we don't need. And all the rest of it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but, uh, but when you're talking about connection to yourself, is it is it there's more to it than physical connection? Is, is there... Yeah. Yeah. So ultimately, I mean, that's kind of the first step. The second step is really to get comfortable getting curious about what's coming up for you as a, as a human being. So what's coming up will typically be coming up in the body. So again, we might have some thoughts in our heads. I might be thinking, I need to go for this job because it's going to be a great job opportunity for me. But in my gut, my in my body, I might be feeling anxiety and fear. Mm. Now that anxiety and fear typically society would want us to ignore it and just kind of push through, push through, push through, push through, or run one or the other, right? But actually that anxiety and fear can have a lot of wisdom for us about what it means to take that job. And so if we can get comfortable being in our bodies and learning to get curious about, okay, that anxiety, where is that anxiety coming from? Is it actually a past projection? 
from the past. And actually, every time I apply for a job, I haven't got it. And so now I just have this fear response to getting a job. Is it actually because my gut's telling me that there's something a bit off about this organization and I should look at that? Is it because maybe I don't have a good rapport with the person interviewing me and there's something around that that I need to look at? Or is it simply, I'm actually just really excited and it's not anxiety at all. And so getting a bit curious about like, where is it coming from? Is it just a fear of change? In which case, that doesn't really mean anything. We all have a fear of change. So you are safe to go forward. Maybe you need to give yourself some comfort and reassurance and some stability, but you're still good to go for it. Whereas if the anxiety is coming up because actually this isn't an organization that will be good for your career and something's telling you that it's not, then probably you shouldn't go for that job. So getting curious can reveal different insights that we are picking up on the whole time that we often dismiss. And actually dismissing doesn't really help us. If we can attend to them, get curious and familiar with them, we can learn to kind of build that relationship to ourselves and whatever's coming up for us so that we can be quite agile and fluid in the moment and recognize whether this is a good thing to do or not a good thing to do, or if there's actually just more information that we need to glean. Does that make sense? I love that. It's really Mm. helpful, Katrina, because Mm. I think a lot of people say, well, you're in that situation, you should listen to your gut. And I think Mm. people, when people say that, they're saying, well, if your gut is telling you something's off, then something's off. Mm -hmm. But but what you're saying is, well, be curious about that. Why Mm -hmm. are you having that feeling? Mm-hmm. And from then from a lean thinking perspective, then what we could say to people is, I'll say to ourselves is, well, if we're not sure, what what sort of experiments can we run? What questions mm-hmm. can we ask? Mm-hmm. What can we find out to see is it, you know, is it this way or that way? And it might be exactly. as simple as, as thinking something through, or it might be as simple as asking an additional question. Exactly. Or, you know, doing a little bit more research about the company if it's if it's mm-hmm. a job situation or talk, you know talking to someone mm-hmm. who already works there mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much more that you could do to but what you're saying is it's not just about listening to the gut it's it's about having curiosity yes. Yes. about why your gut is telling you mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. and I think that's really great because the other thing is you know sometimes when it's a and you talked about this, mm. it's a reaction to something that happened in the past. The way that our brain remembers things is the brain, a brain will remember that amygdala will remember the pain, right? Mm-hmm. But it won't necessarily be accurate about the cause of the pain. Exactly. And that's, that's a really good point at which further curiosity and exploration is valuable. I think what you've just said is really very helpful. Yeah. Um, I appreciate it very yeah, much. Thank you. Yeah. Curiosity is a game changer right? Curiosity brings inherent compassion to the practice. And we know that compassion and self-love and blah, blah, blah are all good things. They're typically hard for people to just learn. So if we can practice curiosity, we're kind of already beginning to do that. And we're getting the added insight of going deeper into what's coming up for ourselves so that we can actually begin to solve for it. So yeah, my curiosity is great. So when you're coaching people, mm-hmm. Do you often see that there's a point at which they suddenly have a breakthrough and they come back to you and they say, Katarina, you won't believe this amazing thing that happened? Do you see yeah. that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it can show up in different ways. It can show up in, I'm trying to think of some examples, but it, it can show up typically in just a sense of a situation or a reframing of that situation. So again, very often there'll be, and I see this a lot with the, the hardworking high achievers that I work with, yeah. but there'll be they might be, you know, a co-founder or a founder or they're applying for jobs, whatever it is, and they'll be going hard at it, very, very systematically, very strategically and kind of pushing themselves to do it. But then they find that their motivation's down 
or that they're not being very productive and they can't mm. seem to get the work done. And they're like, I don't know what's going wrong with me. I'm sleeping eight hours a day, eating well. You know, I've got my structure. I've got my, my desk. I'm, I'm here, but I feel lethargic. It's just not working. I don't know why. And that typically will tell me there's a disconnect going on. There's going to be a disconnect going on where they are disconnected from either some message within that maybe they're going into the wrong direction for them. Maybe they're not really feeling the purpose of what they're doing. Maybe they're neglecting their own needs. There might be something that's getting in their own way. And so that's when getting curious and connecting and helping them kind of begin to discern what's really going on with them will allow them to get that insight that they then need to to act upon. And suddenly motivation and productivity comes back. So that's, yeah, that's kind of the, the simplest way. They get they get in that recharge that they mm-hmm. were exactly were exactly yeah recharge or realign right and that's, realign, that was, yeah. yeah that was what happening with me I was like I don't know why I'm not feeling so energized by this I should be should be and that's when again <laughs> connecting to myself I was like okay yeah all right I see where I'm going wrong yeah and where's that should coming from anyway you know, exactly like, according to who yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. wow. Wow. So is there a third step? You talked about a first step and a second step. Is there a third step that we should know about? Yeah, the the third step is to act. So Mm. by act, what I mean is when we think about building a relationship to ourselves, we can build a relationship by beginning to connect with ourselves and see what's coming up. The integrity piece to that relationship, the piece that really builds that trust, is going to come from acting upon what comes up for us. So if I have an intuitive insight, for example, or I have a sense about something, I mean, okay, great example. So I've, I've applied for jobs in the past where they seemed like a good decision. They seemed like a healthy, rational, strategic choice that would help me climb a career ladder, get a pay rise, blah, blah, blah. And yet my, my gut was feeling a little bit off. I would feel either a little bit anxious and not because I was underperforming, I was flying through the interviews, but something just felt a little bit like "Mm, something just doesn't feel quite right. And had I, I I knew knew it was coming off me. Had I actually listened to that and actually acted upon that, I would have strengthened my own self-trust because really what I would be telling my body at that time, telling myself on an internal level at that time is that, I'm safe to bring up insights and I'm actually going to do something about them. And it's in the act of doing that I complete that kind of cycle of integrity, but I'm actually following through when I didn't follow through and I didn't actually do anything different. I was just like, oh, just ignore it, ignore it, ignore it. I'm probably just anxious, ignore it. And I went ahead. That directly erodes self-esteem, self-efficacy, self-trust, all the things that we want. So the third component that's really important is to actually do something. And that doesn't mean that you have to do something drastic. Doing something based on a gut instinct might feel quite scary, right? Especially if it feels like it's kind of going in a different direction to what we think we should be doing. So I always talk about micro actions. It's not about doing something drastic, quitting your job or or not applying for that job. Micro actions are simply, hmm, okay, if something's coming up for me and I'm feeling a bit uneasy about X, Y, and Z, what is the smallest thing that I can do to begin to test that hypothesis and begin to actually give myself some reassurance? And that might look like getting more information. As he said, it might look like talking to someone. It might look like maybe not going for it after all, but doing something, some action will help build that muscle of self-trust, which will directly 
allow us to bring up more connection to ourselves and more insights. And it's kind of this like lovely cycle that we strengthen that connection and relationship to ourselves and the things become easier. We can make decisions faster. We can sense check faster. Does that all make sense? What what I hear you saying Mm -hmm. is that we can actually build our own trust in ourselves Mm -hmm. because if we do this, then what we're going to do is we are going to become reliable for our own selves. Exactly. In exactly. the same way that we expect to be reliable for our clients or the, the mm-hmm. people that we're in relationships with. You know, if I said, you know, if you said to me that you were unhappy about something and I said, well, you know, I said, well, what's going on? I was curious about it. And then I helped you with that particular situation. Doing that for ourselves mm-hmm. is is extremely important. And I just want to go back to, again, what we were talking about with so the gender thing, mm. many times I think as women, we're socialized to put ourselves last, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So everybody else gets what they need before we take care of what we need. And at least, mm-hmm. at least I think, again, that's been, that's been my experience. That's, mm-hmm. that's a should that I've mm-hmm. absorbed over my life. Mm-hmm. You know, this is what I should, I should mm-hmm. do. And what I hear you saying is that's actually not helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we keep, if we keep in the same way as not exercising or not, you know, not choosing what to eat, um, not building our own self-reliability towards ourselves, won't complete that cycle that will allow exactly. us to be better at checking in with ourselves. And hundred wow, percent, yeah. And a fun, not fun, but kind of a interesting side point to that. When when I hear people tell me they have trust issues or they don't trust other people. That's sure. Stuff might have happened in the past that broke that trust. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've certainly had that myself. And at the same time, the fastest way to healing that lack of trust in others is to build the trust in ourselves. So the reason very often we don't trust other people is because we might have had an insight or a hunch or a sense that that person, whoever broke our trust, wasn't in fact trustworthy, or they were in fact doing something wrong, or there were actually signs going on, and we just ignored them. And in the act of ignoring, we broke our own trust because we dismissed ourselves. And therefore, naturally, we can't really trust other people because how can we trust other people if we can't trust ourselves to protect ourselves with other people? That's an incredible insight. Thank Mm. you. Yeah. Katerina, how can people find you if they want to connect with you, talk more, spend more time with you? Yeah, sure. So I live on LinkedIn. I'm normally on LinkedIn, um, which I'm sure you'll have in the show notes. And then my website, so www.katerinapolonska.com. And then just drop me an email or book a call. I love connecting with people. So very open to it. That's Mm -hmm. that's terrific. So what's your one piece of advice for a young person starting out? Learn to start connecting with yourself. Learn to start connecting. Yeah, I think the sooner that we can begin to reclaim that muscle that we had, that we were born with, Mm. And reclaim that sense of self-trust and self-efficacy and trusting that actually, if you have a spidey sense, it's probably going to be true and not to dismiss it. So if you have a spidey sense that actually, you know, you're starting out in life and your parents want you to do a certain job, but you're not sure if you're actually going to enjoy it, then by all means, look at it and, you know, and test that hypothesis, but listen to it. Listen to it. Don't just do things for the sake of doing them because people tell you you should be doing them. They're not you. Right. Right. Yeah. Don't let people shoot all over you. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I love that. 
Karina Polanska, thank you so much for traveling with You're me so to welcome. the edges of Berlin. You're so welcome. This is Bella Engelberg, and I'd like to thank Katerina Polanska for being my guest at the Edges of Lean. What did you learn from this conversation? What ideas did it spark? And how do you connect with yourself? We would love to hear from you. You can find Katerina at katerinapolanska.com and on LinkedIn as well. Find me on LinkedIn or at leanforhumans.com or comment wherever you watch or listen. And check out my friends in the Lean Communicators community at leancommunicators.com, where you will find lots of great new content every week. The Edges of Lean is written and produced by Bella Engelbach with support from Podcast Inc. This is a Lean for Humans production.